Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you for joining us here at NatSec Nightcap, our monthly webinar series focused on conversations with distinguished national security experts on pressing issues facing the United States and its allies. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at NSI. I'm sitting in for NSI Founder and Executive Director Jamil Jaffer. Just so you know, uh, my feet do not fit in his shoes. Uh, this month, we are joined by Dr. Heather Wilson. It's a huge thrill for us to have her. Dr. Wilson is the 11th President of the University of Texas at El Paso. Prior to joining UTEP, she served as the 24th Secretary of the United States Air Force from 2017 through 2019. While Secretary of the Air Force, Dr. Wilson focused on restoring the readiness of the force, which had declined after years of combat and budget constraints. She proposed and supported three straight years of double-digit budget increases for military space capability and guided implementation of acquisition reform to reduce the time to get military capability to the warfighter and increase competition by making it easier for innovative companies to supply the Air Force. Previously in government, she was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives, representing New Mexico's first congressional district. Dr. Wilson, thanks very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So um, we're going to we're going to go with a question and answer format tonight. Uh, for those of you in the audience, and it looks like we've got a pretty good number, if you would like to propose a question, uh, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, and I will, uh, I'll review the questions in there and read them uh, to President Wilson. Uh, so please just go ahead as, uh, as you are struck by the need to ask questions, go ahead and put it in there. Uh, President Wilson, let's start at, uh, as it were, 300,000 feet. Uh, outer space is becoming more contested with an increasing number of private actors and public actors mm -hmm. jockeying for advantage. Uh, I'm thinking of there's a lot of American companies that are going into space. Other countries are finding it easier to get there. Of course, the U.S. has always had a dominant role there. What do you see as the nature of the threat in space, and how do you think mm -hmm. we should be going about combating it? Well, first of all, I don't think there's any real concern about the commercial use of space, and it is enabling all kinds of technologies that are make, making our lives better. But, but uh, it, it is becoming more contested, and the reason is that the United States is the best in the world at space, and our adversaries know it, and they're seeking to deny us the use of space during crisis or war. And we can't allow that to happen. So what do we, what does the United States do from a, from a national security perspective in space? The, there are about 70 satellites that the Space Force, or previously the Air Force, operated. Um, everything from, a, from a, about the size of, a, of a, a microwave to the size of a school bus. Um, the, the Navy has about 13 more, which will gradually shift over their mission. They have specialty communication satellites. Uh, and, um, and then there are about 40 or so that are run by the intelligence community. So there's not a huge amount of equipment, but it does enable just about everything else the United States military does. It's a huge advantage for the United States. So, so you know, what do we do there? Well, um, 
about 33 of those satellites are GPS. And that, that blue dot on your phone does not come from the cell phone company. Uh, that comes from the United States Air Force uh, or the Space Force now that, um, that operates the GPS satellites. And that signal was uh, President Reagan made the decision to, to uh, decrypt that signal and make it available for commercial use. So if you can, if you're within visibility of any three satellites, you can, your phone can tell pretty much where you are in the world and which lane of traffic you're in. So GPS is a big one. Communications is one. Command and control. And of course, watching the world or listening to the world. So, so intelligence. It's a tremendous advantage of the United States and our adversaries have watched how we have used space um, and they are now developing the capabilities to deny us the use of space uh, uh, in crisis or in war. When We've seen that in 2008, China launched a, um, basically launched a telephone pole at one of its dead weather sites. Uh, it showed that it had the ability to launch a missile into space and destroy a satellite at low Earth orbit shattered it into about 3,000 pieces, created all kinds of debris and problems, but showed they had that capability. Just this last summer in July, um, there were a couple of satellites the Russians launched earlier this year that they called inspection satellites, um, which, you know, the first question in my mind is who are they inspecting, themselves or us? Turned out they, they did kind of a maneuver very close to an American satellite. And then in July, one of those satellites did a maneuver, came close to another Russian satellite and discharged an object. Satellites are very fragile things. Um, they're, they're very lightweight, very fragile. And if they're bumped, they, you, can, you can do damage to them very easily. Uh, you don't need some kind of a huge device to damage a satellite. And if they're bumped, they tend to, you know, fold up and, fo and phone home. So they demonstrated the ability to have a satellite come up to another satellite and potentially damage it. That was a very significant thing and publicly disclosed by the United States. So the threat is quite real. Um, and uh, and uh, you can all imagine what would happen if we, uh, if, if uh, the United States suddenly lost GPS. I mean, it, uh, it would affect about $70 billion of our economy. And there are a billion people who use GPS every day. So uh, obviously, the, the creation of Space Force made big news when it was, was announced by the president. But since mm -hmm. then, it's flown a little bit uh, under the radar, if you will. Uh, what can Space Force do to make a significant impact and how can the Air Force work with it to make it successful? So, so the Space Force, just to be clear, is above the radar, not below the radar. I just, <laughs> um, um, a couple of things. So the Space Force is actually quite small. It'll, it'll be by far the smallest of the services. There's only about 16,000 people that work on space things uh, for the for the United States military. So, in in um, as a comparison, I think the size of the Coast Guard is about fifty four thousand. So, in terms of numbers of people, it's very small because they're they're running seventy to a hundred pieces of equipment um, that that are in orbit, and they're buying equipment. We the United States government doesn't build its own equipment it contracts to have equipment built so so um so it's actually quite small i think the most important things that can be done right now is first to create a warfighter focus on space 
So there's a unified combatant command now on space that is, that is not focused on buying stuff or providing a utility, but how do we defend what we have on orbit? How do we enable warfighters in other domains, air, sea, ground, subsurface, to, uh, to be more effective at defending our vital national interests? And space is an enabler that way. Um, we need that warfighter focus. Um, I think that there is an opportunity to more close, to deepen the connection between the Space Force and the intelligence community. Uh, the intelligence community operates satellites as well. They are also vulnerable. And so they have to be connected um, to this system of, of defending our assets on orbit. And so close cooperation there and deepening that cooperation is important. The thing I worry about most, honestly, Lester, is that, that it's so small um, that, uh, that when it no longer becomes the cool new toy, that it would be, it'd be very easy, uh, to, um, to be crushed in the, you know, it's the ant among the elephants in the Pentagon. Um, when you have 70 pieces of equipment and the United States Navy is talking about 355 ships, you know, their biggest piece of equipment doesn't even compare in size to, I mean, it's just small and small bureaucratically as well. And I worry uh, that when people are no longer there who are tremendous advocates, that it may not be able to thrive because of its size. Same problem happens on Capitol Hill. You know, the, the Capitol Hill criticized my predecessor and to some extent me for on space. Um, but the real challenge was they weren't funding what needed to be done to meet the threat that was coming. And um, uh, and so uh, uh, the criticism, sometimes the critics need to look in the mirror. I'm going to go a little off script, uh, President Wilson, and ask you, you know, you were, you of course were in Congress, you know how mm. it works. Is, is the support on the Hill not enough related to constituent interests or, you know, that they're not, uh, that members of Congress aren't seeking to bring bacon back home, you know, and, and Space Force is maybe not a good way to do that? Or is it mm. that they're not necessarily bought into the mission yet? What's the, or is it a combination of those things on the Hill or Space Force? I think it's very difficult for people to understand how space enables what we're trying to do in other places and why it's so important. Um, because it's hard to imagine, hard for people to see. I mean, if you say, you know, everybody has somebody in their family was in the Marine Corps or mm -hmm. they've got an army base or they've got an air force base. But when you say to someone, well, you know, I, I operate a satellite, it's, it's not even, it's hard to even imagine what that is uh, for people and how does this work? So I think it's hard to make it real for them. I would say the other challenge is that because space capabilities are so small, they're really only three states that um, are most interested in the Space Force, California, Colorado, and Florida. Um, compare that to the Navy, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force. There's not a natural constituency and an advocacy. Look at, uh, look at how strong and powerful the shipbuilding industry is. Yep. Space is just a subset of aerospace companies um, and some other commercial companies that focus on space. I worry in the sharp elbows of, of Washington, D.C., whether space is vital and does it have enough inherent advocates 
by the structure of the system. I worry about that. Uh, I'm going to go to a, a question from the Q&A here, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to point out up front, it appears to be from someone in the Navy. Uh, so this may be a hostile question. Um, okay, I'm ready. Uh, pointing out that uh, the next, one of the next phases of our presence in space is going to be a permanent presence on the moon. Uh, other countries seem to be pointed in this direction. I think China has a, a probe on the moon that's been operating for several years, but we're talking about a a permanent structure for the U.S. there. How would that change the game in space? And are we in a good position to take advantage of that? Um, first of all, this, the, uh, the uh, moon exploration and on the way to Mars is actually done by, the, by NASA in our government structure rather than by the, the Pentagon and the military services. Uh, but I do think that, you know, we're an exploring spacefaring nation and we should be there. The one thing that is interesting um, China launched a satellite that went out uh, beyond um, uh, beyond the normal high uh, high orbit, um, and the question becomes: All right, are we vulnerable not just from co-orbital satellites or from something that's launched from the Earth, but are they thinking about something coming back in? You know, so are they trying to get you behind you to knock you out, right? Um, and uh, so I think there's a, there's a little bit of concern there on exactly what are they, what are they exploring? So uh, that brings up another kind of interesting question. We talked earlier about how much uh, private enterprise is now involved mm. in exploring space. A lot of companies, uh, Elon Musk maybe being the most, uh, uh, having the most notoriety, uh, being involved uh, in space exploration and our presence in space, how do you how do you work out the math between uh, the U.S. government and the military and the private sector when it comes to protecting assets of private companies in space? Is there a way to collaborate mm. between the government and the private sector to to have a a coherent approach to this issue? Uh, since uh the dawn of the satellite age, the United States Air Force, and now I assume they've shifted over to the Space Force, it's on its way to the Commerce Department eventually, but has kept track of all objects in orbit around the Earth that, that are larger than about a softball, and have done that, kept the catalog for the world. Um, and interestingly, um, irrespective of other kinds of geopolitical things going on. So, so when, uh, when the, uh, we actually warned the Chinese about debris they created that may interfere with one of their satellites. It, it's it's um, just remarkable um, responsibility that the, that the United States took on and continues to provide. Um, there's a, a, just as a funny aside, after uh, Elon Musk did the test, you know, when he, we put the Tesla up in, in orbit with that, you know, with the space guy in it, uh, that actually was added into the database. And somebody screenshotted and sent it to me when I was secretary of the Air Force. It, honest to goodness, gives the number of the object. And then it says Tesla, comma, red. After, in the, it was just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> a hilarious approach to things. But the, um, uh, the, with respect to commercial satellites, commercial communications is actually um, a, a tremendous, you know, the, the, the government buys a lot of commercial communications uh, and buys some other things for Earth observation. But um, uh, those satellites are valuable 
to the United States government, but but so is all kinds of satellite communication and, and you know, entertainment near dish network. So there's a lot in space that's commercial. I would say that there are people who advocate using commercial space as a substitute for very expensive military space. And I will tell you that launching hundreds of cheap satellites a year into orbit for all missions fails in combat. It would be fine if it's an uncontested domain. But the whole point is we have to change the way we're looking at this because it, it, it will be contested. So you can say that my Subaru is a lot cheaper than a mine-resistant uh, combat vehicle, you know. Um, but if, if somebody is shooting at me, I'd rather be in the mine-resistant <laughs> mine vehicle. It's not going to survive. So, so there are things that you can use commercial industry for, um, but there are some missions that you cannot use it for. And the important thing is to think about which is which. So you wrote a uh, an op-ed. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal, I think, yesterday, uh, maybe yeah, two, the day before. Yeah, two days ago. Yeah, something two days like that. Ago. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Um, and uh, you talked about the electromagnetic spectrum mm. owned by the Department of Defense, and you kind of talked about some options we may have to have greater mm. utility from that spectrum. Can you can you talk about that issue and and your and the sure. point you are making in the op-ed? Well, one of the challenges that we have, and as it's been discussed pretty widely, I guess, is, um, is that um, the whole telecommunications industry, the, the equipment industry, is no longer an American industry. And when it comes to 5G, various fast communications, the next generation of fast communications, um, the, the leading companies are Chinese companies. Um, China has, has, uh, has taken an interesting approach to the internet when at the birth of the internet, they, they decided they were going to try to control what their people saw and what they could do on the internet, simultaneously try to dominate the industry uh, from, a, from, a from, a, from an equipment point of view. Um, the question to me is, how can we not, you know, the United States government would be, I, we're terrible at subsidizing industry, and that probably wouldn't work. Um, but is there a way to take what the government does have? The government controls the spectrum, and it has a very, pretty large chunk of national security spectrum that's set aside entirely for national security purposes. Government spectrum is actually underused on most days. It's vitally needed on America's worst day. So is there a way to go out to American innovators and say, okay, can you come up with a way technically to use this spectrum most of the time, but have radical preemption rights for national security at a moment's notice if needed? Because if you can, you can then say, all right, we're going to do this for 5G and cause private sector investment to be able to share this very valuable spectrum. And, and so use American innovation and investment, which is what we're better at uh, in the private sector, to beat the Chinese top-down centrally controlled approach. And I think that that has potential. There's a proposal working its way through the bureaucracy in the Pentagon that looks at that, but it's, it's not what they usually do, right? They're used to just licensing spectrum, auction it off, and, uh, and protect what the military needs. Well, it's a limited resource. This is a scarce resource. How can you use it better 
to achieve the bigger national security objective of making sure China doesn't own the joints and sinews of the internet. So that was the idea. And I think they need to go forward with that. I think they need to accelerate that proposal and see what, you know, go out there with a request for proposals or request for information and say, all right, what do you got? Um, what's the technology that could really bring 5G American made um, and see what, it, see what happens, see what they've got. Do you, have, do you have a sense of any other granularity on what kinds of innovation that might unleash and if, if we were able to, to have that kind of flexibility? Well, um, I think there are several, it's, you know, it's not that hard a technical challenge, really. I mean, most of us who have enough gray hair remember on Saturday mornings when the TV would put out a tone and it'd say, um, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Under the telecommunications laws of the United States, every radio station and television station has to have equipment in their control rooms that allows the government to you know, throw a switch and take over the television broadcasting. Um, what's the equivalent in the advanced digital world? Now, it's more complicated because you've got more towers and you get distributed networks and things, but we've got more tools too. We've got advanced computing power, which we didn't have in the 1950s when TVs were first invented. So um, I, I think I think there will be companies who come in with interesting proposals, and I think we should be open to what they are. I'm going to go ahead and start uh, uh, looking a little harder at some of these questions from the audience. And I'll just remind folks, if you want to ask a question of President Wilson, use the Q&A feature uh, at the bottom of your screen, not the chat, but the Q&A portion. Uh, and, and here's one. This person wanted to remain anonymous, perhaps another uh, Navy person. Uh, what are trade-offs between defending existing space assets versus being able to quickly replace assets that adversaries have knocked out of service? Which mm -hmm. strategy or combination of strategies is the DOD pursuing and what should it do? Interesting point on strategy, and thank you for bringing up strategy, because in the whole debate over the last couple of years leading up to the creation of the Space Force, one, there were two elements that I didn't think were highlighted enough. One was the underfunding of space um, in the previous five years, uh, and that that solves a lot of the problems. But the second is, what is our strategy for a contested domain? That requires some, you know, some think time. And there, wasn't, there hasn't been enough discussion of that. Um, I I would, let me give you a couple of thoughts. First, you need to be able at least minimally to protect and defend some of your most important assets on orbit. So there are a lot of different ways to think about that, you know, and, and analogies, you know, chaff and flares, um, being able to, you know, dunk and duck, dodge, weave, and all of them have different trade-offs. So protect and defend is one avenue of a strategy. This, a second one is, is stopping an attack. So what we would call in the terrestrial realm, uh, counter force. In other words, okay, who's going to shoot at me? As soon as he knows, as soon as I see him raise his gun, I'm going to, I'm going to knock it away. So, so how can you stop the attacker? Um, um, there is this strategy of proliferation that says, let's put up 150 little satellites. They can only take down, you know, a couple. Well, that works as long as the bullets are more expensive than the satellites, I suppose. Um, but, and, and as long as you've got all kinds of duplicity and coverage, because if, if what I really need to do is just 
blow a small hole for a small number of minutes, replenishing that conf- constellation doesn't solve your military problem, right? So, so if I need to, uh, um, if, if the United States is staring at the Earth and they're staring at a particular, say, set of launch sites, and I just need a 10-minute window to get maneuverable hypersonic missiles off that launch site, I don't need to take down the whole constellation, right? So thinking that part through, I think, is important. But there are some things for which proliferation might be a good strategy. Um, so, so thinking about those strategies, and I think one of the most important thing is a single strategy is unlikely to be effective. So how do you create multiple dimensions of strategies that complicate, complicate the decision of an adversary and undermine their confidence that they'd be able to prevail. You know, maybe they have something that we don't know about. Maybe this isn't going to work and cause them to back away from, cause deterrence um, to be effective. So I think there needs to be more written and more thought about on strategy in space and how space strategy connects into the overall strategy uh, of the United States and the United States military. It has to be integrated, and I, that's probably the last point I'd make on that. You know, we did, uh, the U.S. made a huge effort on nuclear weapons strategy uh, during the Cold War, thinking about first use, about counterforce, proliferation, deterrence, all of those things. And, you know, thank God it, it largely worked. But it seems like looking back that the initial strategies were not necessarily the ones that we ended up with. Do you, mm-hmm. How do you feel like this is going to evolve over time as we see events play out in space between the U.S. and China and perhaps Russia? It's also a very interesting question. Um, uh, in order for deterrence to work, you have to have a capability. Um, you have to have intent. They have to be, and you're, you're, uh, you have to telegraph what you will do and be able to back that up. So all of those things have been a little bit undermined in space by our reluctance to talk about any of it. And it's one of the reasons I was very pleased to see that uh, Jay Raymond, the head of the Space Force, um, uh, uh, and and the Space Force publicly released a statement in July about Russian um, on-orbital anti-satellite testing of a weapon. my guess is that that took some kind of, you know, um, permission from from everybody to talk about that. Well, who are we hiding it from? The Russians know they did it. You know, let's let's be clear with people about what the threat is. We then are going to have to um, be very clear. Of, you know, deterrence only works if people know what the consequence is. And if they're confident, they'd have to bear that price. I think one of the things that does concern me about recent, um, you know, about the credibility of our deterrent uh, had to do with um, how the United States responded or didn't respond when a global hawk was shot down. Um, So what is the difference between a global hawk and a satellite? Would we really respond? I think we need to be very clear um, that we will and, and exactly that the consequences will not necessarily, you know, we will respond at a time and place of our choosing, but we will respond. And um, because otherwise deterrence starts to slip. You're talking about the issue last year with Iran? That, yes. Uh, that episode. 
Um, all right, I want to read a question from Abdullah Al-Najum, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. Are there efforts for space with regards to cyber risk and cybersecurity, just as there are for banking and for critical industrial and energy infrastructures? Are the regulations and standards as mature as these other sectors? Well, I think there's uh, the standards are the same for, for military equipment as they are for for um, satellites. Um, so, so the answer to that is generally yes, but I think, I think all of us know that the, the threat is significant in the, in the cyber realm and, and, um, and we worry about that. Um, it's also, you know, this, while the cyber is, a, is certainly a threat to satellites, um, so are fairly simple things um, like, you know, dazzling and jamming. We think about, you know, GPS and how cool it is to have your blue dot on your phone or to be able to navigate your car, it's actually a very weak radio signal. So it's, it's not, a, it, and so you don't need to do much to jam it. It's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, if, if somebody is practicing a flute and then their brother starts cranking the stereo in the next room with rock music, you can't hear the flute. So it's, it's pretty easy to jam some of these signals. Um, and it's pretty easy to dazzle a satellite just like it is to shine a, you know, a laser in the eyes of an airline pilot who's trying to land at the local airport. Uh, Aaron McCullough asks about um, mineral resources and how uh, the U.S. is dependent on sourcing those from other countries uh, on occasion. How uh, is that implicated in space? Uh, our need for other countries to be involved in our mineral and manufacturing supply chains? I'm not a manufacturing engineer, um, but, but uh, my guess is, given the, the nature of satellites, they're, they're uh, just as complex as your cell phone, and your cell phone is full of, um, of um, scarce minerals and scarce minerals that are m mostly imported. Uh, and there's been an effort to uh, try to onshore some of those, particularly those or develop technologies, um, mining technologies to uh, cost effectively mine rare earth minerals that are uh, found only in large concentrations, for, uh, particularly ones where we're de dependent on ones where the supply is primarily from China. Um, some of those are, uh, are bearing some fruit, uh, but uh, uh, there was, I'm trying to think it was uh, how long ago it was, but um, I think Japan said, did something or said something the Chinese didn't like, and they started having trouble with their supply chain of rare earth minerals. And that got everybody's attention, um, that um, the United States doesn't want to be dependent on adversaries for things that are critical for our economy or our national security. This is a uh, question from Teresa Hitchens. Shifting gears, do you see a major shift in the composition of the future Air Force aircraft force structure from piloted aircraft to drones anytime soon? Or do you think the mm -hmm. long-standing long service culture will continue to resist? Well, the, the, uh, the number of squadrons of aircraft that are manned has declined significantly over the last 20 years, while the squadrons of unmanned aircraft has, have increased. So there, that actually, that transition has been going on. Uh, the question is really what, what is the mission and how, what is the kind or, or piece of equipment that you need to accomplish 
that mission? And then how do you make all of these things work together um, as, far to, as part of a campaign plan? So I think, um, I think uh, the, the Air Force has certainly made that adjustment, but it's not just the Air Force. All of the services are using, um, are using different sizes and types and ranges of unmanned aerial vehicles, and so are our adversaries. I want to uh, I want to ask you about um, uh, kind of grand strategy as as the U.S. shifts from the like a global war on terror uh, posture to great power competition. How do you how do you see the the uh, the role of the Air Force evolving into that? It's not really a new mission, but evolving into that mission over over mm. the next decade or so. And before you answer, I just want to remind the audience. Uh, if you want to ask a question, use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Okay, mm. President Wilson. Um, with respect to the shift, if you, if you look at, and you just, I mean, look at the nature of, of the threats in the, in the world, if you, if you look at the campaign plans for the Pacific, they are largely dependent on Navy, Air, and Space Forces. If you look at the campaign plans for Europe, and the Middle East, they are largely ground, air, and space forces. Um, there's something common there, <laughs> which is all of our campaign plans heavily depend on air and space forces. Uh, and the Air Force has actually been the force that's been, in my view, most overextended throughout the global war on terror as well. Because even when, uh, even in the, you know, uh, when we were fighting ISIS in Syria, it was mostly indigenous forces supported by intelligence, uh, exquisite intelligence, and American and allied air power. So, uh, so, uh, the United States, the United States Air Force, went to war over 29 years ago and never came home. It is uh, it is heavily relied on and pretty overextended. Um, so it's it's um, it's vital to everyone. And, and and it's you know one of the other things, even though it's it's in every operating plan, but there's it's interesting to look at the other services. And I didn't you know before I worked in the Pentagon, I never really thought about these kind of things, but. Um, the other services have levels of readiness because there are some forces that will be there in, you know, 30 days and some in 60 days. And, and it's, um, you know, then you have to call up the reserves and those things. The Air Force doesn't have tiered readiness because we are the stopping force. We're the ones who have to be there immediately. So there's no 30 or 60 day call up kind of thing. Um, so it is very high levels of readiness, globally available, moments notice, uh, send a message. Um, and, you know, the Navy sends messages as well and where we send the fleet, but so does the presence of, of uh, B-52 bombers um, escorted by F-22s and F-35s. Um, so it's, um, it's uh, heavily used in every one of the war plans. And then you add on to that two legs of the strategic nuclear deterrent. Another question uh, from our audience, William Thewer, uh, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, asking about COVID conditions. And now that you're seeing a lot of people not going into the office, they're working from home, uh, the government's had to make some adjustments. I presume similar things are happening in the military, but is that, have, 
as you've seen that and lived that in your current job and thought back to being a uh, secretary of the Air Force, have you thought about how that distributed network approach to, you know, kind of workaday issues could impact, you know, the next generation of war fighting or mm -hmm. of, of defense posture for the United States? Do you, have any, do you have any thoughts on that kind of very broad topic? Well, thank you for asking me something related to what I'm currently doing, um, as opposed to my intellectual kind of background or things on national security. So, so I'm president of the university that's behind me right now. And they, so we're a quarter of the mile from the U.S.-Mexico border, University of Texas at El Paso. And we have 25,000 students, um, uh, most of them from West Texas, although a thousand of them come across the border from Mexico every day to go to school um, at UTEP. And so, so we have this, uh, this, uh, this wonderful university, which we had to turn into distance education on a dime um, last March. And we were successful in that transition, most, mostly because of exceptional faculty and staff. But we're now, you know, and, and in the wake of that, there was a lot of um, chatter about how higher ed will never be the same. This is a pivotal moment. We're all going to be teaching college online. And, uh, and we will learn some things about how we can deliver education, increase access to excellent education using these technologies. But we are also now at the point where... Um, we're learning that with greater granular, people who think that's going to happen don't really understand how people learn. And that just two-dimensional learning or just isolated learning um, is not the most effective learning and, and certainly not for every individual. So the question when we come back will be, how do we use the best of these technologies um, and combine them with group learning and community-engaged um, education uh, to, to solve complex problems, to accelerate learning, um, and to make the college experience even better. Uh, but it's not going to be um, as simple as some people have publicly described it. It will be more nuanced. And so, so uh, and I think that's particularly true for low-income students, and we serve a lot of low-income students for whom this is... Uh, this is not an ideal situation. So you're, you're in El Paso, which I, I believe is a mile from the U.S. southern border, our border with Mexico. Uh, it's right on the border, yeah. Be, yeah. It's got to be a very different perspective uh, than what we have here in Washington, just, just for that fact alone. Can you talk about uh, what opportunities we have to collaborate with Mexico, how we can expand that partnership, mm. and how that can drive U.S. security and education issues uh, in the future. So um, the U.S. and Mexico do about $600 billion worth of trade every year. The city that's behind me, we're right on the, so, so this is the, the fourth largest manufacturing area in North America is El Paso Juarez. It's a community, it's a binational, bicultural community divided by a river, five bridges go across it. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating international community, um, but on the, on most of the manufacturing is on the other 
uh, on the uh, Mequiodoro on the Mexico side of the border, but there's huge transportation networks through this region. Um, and uh, you know, think about it, there are about 70,000 people who come across those bridges every day, about 2,400 container trucks or trains every day across those five bridges just in this city. So I think one of the things that we probably haven't talked enough about is trade and onshoring and nearshoring in the wake of the pandemic. There are supply chains that were disrupted that go into, uh, into largely into Asia that more companies are thinking about, all right, how do we bring the critical pieces of that back to North America? And we're already seeing some of it here on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border um, as companies look to expand logistics and trade with Mexico as a more reliable, stable supply chain. So I think trade is certainly, certainly one of them. Um, and, um, and I think technology enables connection in ways that it, you know, it hasn't before. I've, I mentioned I've got a, UTEP has a thousand students who cross the bridge every day. They've been working and studying from home. Um, I have a, uh, we have this, you'll notice the odd architecture here. It's actually architecture based on Bhutanese architecture and there's a historical reason for that. But we have a large number of students here from Bhutan, the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan. We actually have students who are studying remotely here at home in Bhutan who get up at three in the morning to tutor students in Texas because there are student employees of the University of Texas at El Paso. This is, this is just an amazing world. Um, and so what are, the, what, are, what are the things that are enabled um, that we couldn't do before? And how do we blend those in with the things that are best done in person? I think it's an exciting time. So uh, if, if I can keep going down that road a little bit, you're the also, among your many other responsibilities, you're the chair of the Women in Aviation Advisory mm -hmm. Board. Um, you're there at an educational institution that has incredible diversity. And I'm also remembering the movie Glory Road. I think Utah yeah. uh, had the first all-black basketball team in NCAA history. Uh, terrific movie. Uh, but yeah. thinking about kind of what our country is going through now um, mm -hmm. in the wake of uh, some of the incidents that's happened, what happened in Minneapolis, other things, the protests, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. a little bit more than a protest. How do you how are you thinking about diversity issues, both in terms of your work at UTEP, but also uh, in terms of national security? How can, how can we do better? So, so I am chair of the Women in Aviation Advisory Board for the FAA that's looking at how can we open the pipeline to get more women into aviation professions, not just the cockpit, but also maintenance and other aviation professions. But the issue of... Uh, of race in America is an interesting one in a city. And you know, my, my university is 81% Hispanic, um, about 4% Black, 1% uh, Native American, um, 3 or 4% international students. So we're actually only 6% Anglo at my university. Um, and it has a history here that goes back so you mentioned the 1966 basketball team. So, so the coach at that, at that UTEP made it, at that time, Texas Western was what it was called, made it to the NCAA finals against University of Kentucky. And the coach at the time, Don Haskins, put a team on the court of five starters who were his best team, and all five of them were African-American, against the University of Kentucky, an all-white team, a segregated team. 
and won the national championship. That changed college athletics. It didn't just, you know, it was a great victory for UTEP and still celebrated here, but it changed college athletics. It's not just that though. Before Brown versus Board of Education, the NAACP filed a lawsuit here in Texas to desegregate higher education in Texas. The leading, that case was an El Paso case. The leading lawyer was a local lawyer, but his backup was a guy named Thurgood Marshall. The, the, uh, the judge, the federal judge who decided the case was from El Paso. He, uh, he had been a longtime legislator and community leader. And even though the UT system capitulated, and this was in 1957, I guess, when the case finally was decided, he, um, he decided the case even though the facts were no longer the same and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead with integration because he wanted it to be irreversible and he declared segregated higher education to be unconstitutional. That was here at UTEP. So we have a heritage that we try to build upon um, and a responsibility to lead. And I'm very proud of our students that they, they are, they're, uh, our athletes as well as others are, are um, um, building off of that heritage, talking about together we commit, TWST, Texas Western College. Uh, and I've seen that at other places. I saw that at the Air Force Academy, where they're celebrating the red, uh, the red tails, the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, so I think young people connect to their stories and their history, and then they rise to the challenges of a new generation. And I'm just, I'm really proud of what I'm starting to see here um, on, uh, from, uh, from young people uh, and the way in which they're leading us forward. Ter uh, terrific American stories and situation. Uh, okay, I'm going <clears> to <throat> turn back to some of our audience questions. And this is more uh, in the space and, and Air Force realm. <clears throat> Here's from an anonymous uh, participant. How well prepared is the bomber fleet to balance its requirements in the coming years as old bombers are retired and new bombers come online? <laughs> um, gosh, you're taxing my you know, memories and things here, but all right, so the, uh, the B-21, as far as I know, is still on schedule. Um, that'll be the, the United States' next bomber. Uh, the intention is to retire the B-1 bomber um, and have a fleet of entirely B-52s and B-21s. At least that, the, I don't think that decision has changed. The real question will be, how big does the bomber fleet need to be? And is, uh, do they need more squadrons overall? Um, a couple of years ago now, the Air Force did a, did a study on what would it take to implement the national defense strategy of the United States. And... Uh, and what kinds of squadrons um, would be required. Uh, one of the things that, that came out in those studies was the real importance of the ability to project power from long distances. And that's, those are penetrating bombers um, or bombers that can fly, stand off, and then, uh, then, uh, then shoot. So I don't know that, and I saw something from the Air Force Association or from the head of Global Strike that they may need more bombers than they're currently planning. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but the overall conclusion of that study was the Air Force is too small now, it is too small in the future, and they need to grow it to about 386 squadrons. Um, all right, here's a, a question from someone who seems a bit skeptical. 
Do you think the establishment of the U.S. Space Force pursuant to SPD-4 made any practical difference in U.S. space readiness, or was this just a rebranding of the United States Air Force, Air Force Space Command, which was already efficiently managing in this context? Well, you know, um, I'm not all that, I'm more focused on capability as a person than I am on organization charts. I will, uh, so, and I think that's pretty well known, um, but uh, I, the sp I think the most important thing is the Space Force was kept inside the Air Force. So they didn't try to disconnect it and recreate a whole acquisition bureaucracy and budget development bureaucracy and everything, and, you know, recruiting. And um, is this, this force is smaller than the Texas National Guard. So uh, it's a very, very small and very important, but you don't need to put a huge bureaucracy on top of it and make it kind of topple over. So it needed to be, so it's still connected and, and within the Air Force, I think that's I think that's a good thing. The one thing that I would say is I don't think we've completely straightened out the acquisition pieces yet. There are seven different entities in the Pentagon that buy space equipment that uh, the, the last thing we need is one more. Um, they came up with this space development agency concept in the office of the Secretary of Defense, mostly because they had somebody there who thought it would be really cool. It had nothing to do with efficiency of procurement or effectiveness of the force. Um, and I think that that piece of bureaucracy could easily die away without anybody missing it. Um, another question. We, we touched on some of these issues before, but maybe didn't go straight at this. Uh, does space junk create any issues for American or international endeavors in space? And how does that fit into our strategy, if at all? Uh, interesting question. So space junk does create problems um, because, as I mentioned, you're very fragile, um, very fragile things in space. And, uh, and if you bump into them, you can cause damage. Uh, uh, and so the, the United States tracks all those pieces of pieces of debris. Uh, I think we just put up something uh, called it that will track the debris to smaller diameter. And I, I haven't been tracking whether that's now operational. So it's basically tracking stuff that's about softball size. Now can you get down to golf balls? So because a golf ball at 17,000 miles an hour can do some damage. So, so um, I can't even find my golf ball uh, <laughs> in the rough. So, so yes, uh, it does. Um, the good news is these orbits are mostly, you know, they're pretty predictable. So you can do the math and figure out what the risk is going to be. The interesting thing to me is we, you know, the, the United States Air Force notifies commercial uh, satellite companies if there's a risk of a collision from a piece of debris. They, they almost never move because they assess that the risk of getting bumped into is less than the cost of using the fuel to move. It's interesting. But yeah, it's a problem. Uh, There's some technologies and some looks at, all right, are there things you could do to reduce debris or are there practices that everyone should, uh, should put in place that, you know, kind of a, a rules of the road for spacefaring nations. One of them is, all right, when your satellite dies, have you designed it and designed its orbit and the way in which it dies so that it is likely to deorbit instead of just becoming more junk? Uh, another question from Abdullah Al-Najm about uh, third-party risk in supply chains, basically asking if, you know, during the, the pandemic, if we're unable to travel, 
how do you go uh, analyze uh, what is potentially malicious equipment? Uh, how, how can we certify that things are safe when we're in a, uh, a restricted environment in terms of travel? Tough question. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm the best one to, to answer it because every, you know, every business's supply chain is different, but the, 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 the military continued to accomplish its missions and do its job with respect to inspecting supply chains. And we actually, the military, you know, at, at major manufacturing plants and depots, there are people from the United States military actually assigned there. So they, the, their Air Force inspection folks are right there on site, um, watching the, watching the supply line. So I'm not sure that's really, um, um, as much of an issue for the, for the military that kept operating. Let me ask you, uh, kind of, and I, we don't have any more audience questions. So I think we're, we're getting close to the end here, but I want to, I want to ask you a big picture question, uh, as, as space becomes more and more important, uh, and, and is clearly more than just the next frontier. You know, we've got real commercial interest there. We've got real security interest there. Do you think we need to have a little more creative thinking about a more international approach to space? Is there the possibility that, you know, much as we collaborate with the Russians at the International Space Station, maybe there's a way we can work with China, which is potentially a, a very significant adversary of ours, in space, is there a way to turn the next challenge perhaps into a real diplomatic opportunity? There are certainly ways that we cooperate and work with every governor around the world um, uh, consistent with our national interests and, and we see it in research, but we have very close relationships with our allies in space. Um, the, uh, 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 and, and, and deepening relationships with, uh, with allies, with, um, uh, and they they come to our training sessions. We've, we opened a lot of our training uh, to allies. We have a combined space operations center. So combined meeting our allies are at the table too. So um, I think uh, the, but the real question is, you know, is there something that we could do with a potential adversary? Um, you know, it's interesting uh, one of the things about announcing what the Russians did in space in July is they're the ones who are the strongest advocates for, you know, arms control in space to try to limit what the United States is doing in spite of the fact that they are, they are you know, developing on-orbital weapons. So um, some of these um, advocates for for uh, arms control in space or, you know, can, can't we all be friends? Well, um, we need to we need to be uh, uh, we need to uh, smile, um, but know that the vital interests of the person across the table um, may not be may not be ours, and that um, we uh, will never turn our back on a potential adversary. We need to be prepared to fight and defend um, our way of life, and that's um, that's what the United States military does. All right, I'm going to use my uh, moderator's prerogative to say this will be the last question. Um, have you seen Steve Carell's Space Force? And if so, what did you think? Okay, so here's the funny thing. When they started ad advertising that, both my kids texted me and said, Mom, we got to have a watch party and watch this together. Then the former Secretary of the Navy, who's a great friend, Richard Spencer, um, I, I uh, um, 
uh, I, he and I communicate with each to text each other usually. And I said, uh, I said, dude, we've got to, we've got to see this. And he said, my kids told me the same thing. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, Dave Goldfein, the former chief of staff, and I also stay in touch. And, and he thinks they should have cast somebody else in his role. But, um, but I guess he says that Danny DeVito wasn't available or something. But, he, but oh, I saw the first episode, cracked me up. It was very funny. Um, but um, I, I, I haven't seen anything other than the first one. Yeah, I saw the first one. I thought it was okay. Uh, uh, President Wilson, thanks a lot. I thought this was a terrific conversation. We appreciate you taking all this time uh, to be with us, really. Thank you very much. It was uh, very generous of you to do this. Okay, have a wonderful evening. Thanks. All right, and I wanna, before we totally end, I wanna say thank you to everyone else who joined us for this insightful conversation. Uh, At the conclusion of this, there'll be a survey available to provide feedback. Please let us know how we are doing, other topics you'd like us to cover, NATSEC Nightcap is a presentation of the National Security Institute. Learn more about the Institute and our upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu or follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Join us again in a month for another round of our NATSEC Nightcap. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.